0: Happy Independence Day. May we become dependent upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even in this day. And so to demonstrate that, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Lord, we sang songs about how amazing your grace is. And Lord, sometimes as we sing, we really don't take it to heart. I pray, Lord, that you will help us, and it will be renewed in us that your grace really is amazing. How you, the ultimate person in the universe, would want to have a relationship with us is beyond words, beyond amazing. Lord, help us to show our gratitude for your salvation, the salvation that you offer us. And it was so costly to you, Father. You sent your son to die for us, taking upon himself all of our sin. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He was independent from that grave. And now, Father, he is with you at your right hand, interceding for us. So, Lord, I pray that today that you'll help us to understand as we kind of skirt around, as it were, uh, Deuteronomy today that uh, we will get a right orientation toward your Torah, your law. Thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of you know that I spent uh, a day or two in the Air Force, Um, but I also spent several years in the Virginia Army National Guard as well. I took part in what was called the Chaplain Candidate Program to expose those in the program what life would be like as a chaplain, sort of like a try-before-you-buy type thing because the chaplaincy definitely is not for everybody. Now, part of the life of a chaplain is that he or she is not only a pastor but also a member of the military, required to do the things that every other military member does. Now, one of the skills that every soldier must learn well is land navigation or land nav for short. A compass, a map, and knowing how to use both are vital to survive in combat situations. One must know where one is and where he or she is going in the field for obvious reasons. (laughs) Now, part of the land nav training that I participated in involved breaking up into teams and competing to see who could navigate the land nav course the fastest. Now, as a second lieutenant... I was in charge of all these enlisted guys, and woe be it unto the team, <laughs> because I was terrible at land nav. I stunk at it. I failed miserably. And if I didn't have members on my team who knew what they were doing, we might still be out there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Even though I was former enlisted, okay, I, could, I got that for my credit. I have little understanding of land navigation, okay? I'll <laughs> just put that out there. But one thing I did learn is that when following a map, one must orient it in the direction one is going. If going south, orient the map south. But if the map is oriented north when one is going south, he or she will be going in the wrong direction. (laughs) Ask me how I know. (laughs) Or just put in the GPS. (laughs) You could do that nowadays. But when it comes to Deuteronomy... I'm afraid that for many of us, to include pastors, we have the wrong orientation. Somehow we've oriented our spiritual map south, but we're going north. And that has resulted in a lot of, shall we say, unhealthy issues, not only regarding Deuteronomy, but in some measure, the entire Word of God. For most Christians, especially in our church culture of doing what I want because I have freedom in Christ, and some very sloppy approaches to God's holy word. Many have similar sentiments toward Deuteronomy that pastor and author Rob Olin had, and he says, my initial experience with Deuteronomy has much of the traditional encounter, meaning there was virtually no encounter. Throughout most of my life, Deuteronomy was simply a biblical afterthought. Preach from the Shema passage, and you know what that is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Got to do that, certainly. However, most of it can remain on the scrap heap of biblical study. Indeed. How many of us, myself included, have ever done an in-depth study of Deuteronomy? Or, how many of us have sat through a sermon series covering the entire book of Deuteronomy? Or, How many of us have even seen the need to study it? And my guess is that no to all of these questions. After all, we've been carefully trained, taught in recent years that since we are saved by grace, that the law of God is to play little to no part in our thinking. And it goes something like this. God gave us the law to show us that we cannot keep it, to show us that we need a Savior. And Jesus is a Savior. Ergo, We who have been saved by the grace of Christ don't need to study the law, and Deuteronomy is a major part of the law. And to make matters even more complicated, some even hold to the idea that we avoid all things law, like the plague, lest we get off track and try to earn salvation through doing good works. Is that not where many or even most of us in the church are? In a word, law bad Grace good. Well, I want to destroy this line of thinking as we go into Deuteronomy. Let me repeat myself. I want to destroy this line of thinking as we get into Deuteronomy. But don't mishear me. Salvation is indeed by grace through faith in Jesus. We come into the kingdom of God through repentance of sin and embracing the gospel of Christ. And the true Christ of the gospel. As we know, salvation is all about the ultimate person of the universe. Inviting mortal, sinful humans to have a living relationship with him. The king of glory reaches out and offers salvation to us. Creatures most unworthy, though we are his images. Is that not truly amazing? But because we have committed high treason against the sovereign of the universe, the only thing that we deserve from him is his wrath. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, the Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, he is the one who died for us. He rose from the grave three days after his friends laid his body there. And He is right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all of His people according to His will. And one day, this same Lord Jesus will return here and set up His kingdom, and He will reign here forever and ever. This is the God who has called us to salvation by His grace, always and only by His grace, to include His chosen people, Israel. And God, through Moses, communicated in large his grace in large measure through Deuteronomy. Now, you might be thinking, now I'm with you about the grace part, but you lost me when you mentioned Deuteronomy and grace in the same sentence. How can that be? Well, starting next week, we're going to begin to explore this. We're not going to jump into the text of Deuteronomy today, maybe a passage or two, but In this message, I want to help us to begin to reorient our spiritual map. I want to show us where we have gotten off track, quite possibly. And prayerfully, with a somewhat correctly oriented spiritual map, we can see Deuteronomy for the good news that it is. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, our series title, The Gospel According to Moses, is not original with me. Dr. Daniel Block, one of the best and brightest in the field of those who study Deuteronomy for a living, and there are a lot of people who do that, came up with this title. But Moses' fifth book gives profound truth as to who God is and how he wants his people to live based on his grace and all for his glory. So to begin our reorientation, we need to start in what may seem to be an unlikely place. So open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 1, verse 17. John chapter 1, verse 17. And we're going to see what I think is, is where many people kind of get mixed up and get tripped up. John chapter 1, verse 17. Here's what John says. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it's right here where many would say something like, see... Uh, law bad, grace good. It's as though we see a radical disconnect between the law of Moses and the grace of Christ. But nothing could be further from the truth. How so? See, when we understand John one seventeen to read or to mean law bad, grace good, we are reading into the text something that's not there. We have to take this verse out of context to understand it this way. See, John 1, is the end of a section, not the beginning, and neither does it stand by itself. See, verse 14 is the beginning of the section that this verse is attached to, and here's what it says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You might be thinking, so What? How does this relate? In the first chapter of his gospel, John was making his case for exactly who Christ is. The eternal Son of the Father made flesh. In eternity past, the second person of the Godhead was full of grace and truth, as is the entire Godhead trinity. After the second person of the Godhead passed through Mary's birth canal, he was Jesus, the Son of God, full of grace and truth. In other words, God has always dealt with his people by means of these two things. And what are they? Grace and truth. We can look at the flow of John's thought in this passage, John one seventeen, like this. The law, given by God's grace, came through Moses. What a glorious thing. And now, how much more glorious is the demonstration of grace and truth through the second person of the Godhead made flesh? But here's the problem. Many people read John 1.17 as though there is an extra word in this passage, and that word is but. Many people read it like this, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But as we see, if you're a careful Bible reader, you see that that word but is not there. Isn't that true? We will see this in a moment that God dealt with His people through the law of Moses by His grace and truth. The truth is there is grace all over the place when it comes to Deuteronomy. But even though there is no but in John one seventeen, many people have piled on and done their level best over the years to convince us of the disconnect that's not there. And it began almost from the get-go. You know, Satan is a master at Scripture twisting. Did you know that? For example, a guy named Martian, you may have heard of him. M-A-R-C-I-O-N, not M-A-R-T-I-A-N, right? He holds the title of the first heretic in church history. Wouldn't you love to have that title? Here's what he did. He hand-carried a false teaching into the church around 140 A.D. What was his heresy? He believed that there were, in effect, two gods, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Let me quote one writer who summed up Martian's ideas this way in part. The creator, Old Testament God, is a judge, fierce and warlike. And Joshua conquered the Holy Land with violence and cruelty. But Christ, the one whom the New Testament God sent, prohibits all violence and preaches mercy and peace. Now, of course, that's a caricature of Jesus because we know Jesus wasn't just one of those meek guys like that. We think meek. So we can see where people like Andy Stanley gets the idea that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. He says this. But let me make one thing sure or clear that we really understand. We've got to understand this. There's only one eternal all-powerful, all-knowing God, creator of heaven and earth. He breathed out all Scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments. They together make up one Bible with 66 writings, 39 contained in what we call the Old Testament and 29 New Testament writings. There's another idea that leads us to keep Deuteronomy on the scrap heap of our study of the Bible, and it is in the title of this book, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally means second law, Deuteronomy. And it's taken actually from Deuteronomy 17, 18. And here's what this verse says. And when he, as in the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the the Levites, Levitical priests. Through a series of events, the phrase copy of this law or Deuteronomy in English is what the learned Jewish men attached to this book as its title. They had no problem with that title because their view of the law was far different than when we think of when we think of the word law. And though there are a lot of laws in this book, it's true, there is much more to Deuteronomy than that. If we knew Hebrew, for example, we would not even call this book Deuteronomy. We would call it These are the words. That's the title. Because in the Hebrew, how they attach uh, titles to the books were the first few words of the book. So, Deuteronomy actually is, these are the words. Same thing with the other four books, first four books of the Bible. For example, Genesis. We call Genesis, Genesis, but in actuality, it means, or the, the title is, in the beginning. Exodus, what we call Exodus, is not Exodus. It is these are the names. And so I think that's kind of a cool way of attaching the title, don't you? I think it's kind of neat. So again, Deuteronomy's title really is, these are the words. As in, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. But time marches on, and so does tradition. Every time that we see Deuteronomy, we tend to think that studying it is really nothing more than the rehashing of the law of Moses. So why should we bother to study it? And some people, why even bother to read it? There's a, there's a third reason why we don't pay much attention to Deuteronomy, and it is the misunderstanding of the word law. Law. The Hebrew word is Torah. Now most of us know what that is. But now, when this word is translated in, into English, we come up with the three letters L A. W. So you tell me, what comes into your mind when you hear or read these words L or letters L-A-W? You know, we're talking about hard and fast rules with teeth, you know, list of regulations. Get out of line and God will zap. In short, we tend to see Deuteronomy as 34 chapters of dusty accounts of legal briefs that apply to another country, another time. Another place, another language. They have absolutely nothing to do with us. Isn't that the way we tend to look at it? But Torah means teaching. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what it means. As in God through Moses teaching his people how to live. So really it would be better to say the teaching of Moses rather than the law of Moses. As we discover, as we will discover, living according to Torah is really the best way to live. Let me give you just one example. It's been said that if everybody on the planet were to tell the truth for just 24 hours, this world would cease to exist as we know it. I don't know about you, but I'm so weary of hearing lies that come from practically every information source. But one of God's ways, as we learn through Torah, is that we are to be honest with one another. The Torah teaches us that in large measure, speaking truth with one another is the way that we love our neighbor. How different is the world's definition of loving our neighbor? The world in their Torah, air quotes, teaches us that we are to lie to our neighbor in order to spare their feelings. For me, I would much rather someone tell me the truth about myself rather than spare me feelings and tell me a lie about myself. Wouldn't you? So Torah means teaching. Teaching God's people how to live his ways. And by the way, Torah was given to God's elect. It was not given to the world. And we will see this as we go along. And let's not forget that all Scripture is breathed out by God to include Deuteronomy, all with equal origin and with equal authority. Moses' fifth book is every bit as inspired as the gospel of John or Romans. You knew that, didn't you? Go like this. Yes, I knew that. So what are we doing when we yawn at the thought of Deuteronomy? Do we not somehow see it as less inspired, less important than the rest of Holy Scripture? So you with me so far? Are you with me? So far, we've taken two steps in our reorientation of our spiritual map regarding Deuteronomy. Step one is simply, there is no disconnect between the law and grace. Because every time God interacts with his people, it's always based on his grace. The law came through Moses, a grace-filled thing. But how much more grace-filled is God's dealings with us now that Jesus has come? Step two is that Deuteronomy is every bit as inspired, valuable, and applicable, rightly understood, in the first century American church as it was about 3,500 years ago when Moses first spoke these words to God's people. Torah means teaching, teaching God's people about God's ways, how to live in God's world. Let's take a third step, and this is where we need, as Mike Heiser says, to get the Israelite into our head, all right? And what this means for us is that we take a very brief look about how Deuteronomy is laid out. Now, many learned people have tried to tackle this issue because it seems to be very complicated. For some, it is simply a retelling of the laws, the rules, and regulations that God has given to his people. For others, it is Moses' farewell addresses, for he gave several of them in this book, as we will see. For them, Deuteronomy records what amounts to several sermons that he told his people when he was 120 years old. His eye was undimmed and his vigor was unabated. Can you imagine being like that at 120 years old? I want to be like that when I grow up. But there have been some fairly recent discoveries which seem to change the entire way of how many now approach Deuteronomy. Through archaeology and Dead Sea Scrolls, many treaties have been found which were ratified between the nations at the same time period in the same area of geography, the ancient Near East. Of course, this is where Israel is. One kind of treaty is called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Say it with me. Suzerain Vassal Treaty. What is this? A suzerain basically is a superior, more powerful king, all right? A vassal is a vast inferior king or people. Let me spare you the fine details, but let me say this. The suzerain-vassal treaty format is exactly how Deuteronomy was put together, point by point. So let me simply list what the six parts are and then explain why they're important. The suzerain-vassal treaty, again, which means an agreement Made between the suzerain or superior king and the vassal, the inferior king or people, begins with a preamble. In other words, this is who we're, this is who the, the, the treaty is all about. These two parties it's part one. Part two of the treaty tells of the relationship of their history, how they got to know one another, and where they are relationally. Part three is a list of what the suzerain, against this, uh, again the superior king, requires of the vassal in order to make the treaty. The fourth part is listing how the suzerain will bless the vassals for their loyalty to the treaty, and a list of curses if they don't. Part five is simply a listing of those who will witness the superior king entering into the treaty with the inferior party. And finally, arrangements are made to carry on the treaty, like instructions of where to place it, and where both parties are to regularly read it to refresh themselves of their relationship with one another. And Deuteronomy fits all six of these parts. Isn't that amazing? Now, why is this important as we approach Deuteronomy? There was a couple of reasons. First, as Moses gave his sermons, the people knew what was going on. They knew that this was a suzerain-vassal treaty, Yahweh was a suzerain, and he wanted to make, or in this case, renew the treaty with the nation of Israel, the vassals. Another feature of the suzerain vassal treaty was this part of what the suzerain was going to do was going to pledge his protection and provision for the vassal. In return for the privilege of living inside the borders of the land of the suzerain, the vassal pledged to be loyal. To him. Loyal pledge. One of the results that usually went along with this kind of treaty was that if the vassal proved disloyal to the suzerain, the vassal lost the privilege of living in the land. This was the suzerain's land. It was also common that should the vassal become loyal again and turn back to the suzerain, they would regain the privilege of living in the land and all the benefits that go with that. We would call that what? repentance the suzerain would then restore their relationship again for after all this was the suzerain's land and as we go through deuteronomy we're going to see all these things the second reason why this is important this treaty wasn't a cold dead contract it was accompanied by an animal sacrifice where both parties touched blood it was literally a blood covenant covenant I'm reminded in what Leviticus 17:11 says, where the Lord called the blood of the sacrifice a thing of life. He says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And even the wording of the treaty included family relationship words. The suzerain was referred to as father and the vassal was referred to as son. It's amazing. The relationship was a warm one but was serious as well because the formal cutting of the covenant still happened. Animals were still divided in half, and both parties walked between the pieces, again, sharing in the blood of the animal. And they were making this pledge, if I break this covenant, may what was done to this animal be done to me. It's a lot It's a lot more serious than just doing a, a, a contract, writing it down in triplicate. Cutting a covenant, though, was standard operating procedure in that day. It was not unique with God in Israel. Everybody did them. And so what are we to make of all this? If Deuteronomy followed the standard suzerain vassal treaty, which I'm convinced is, is true here, what can we conclude? Two things. Grace and gospel. Grace and gospel. Well, how so? First, a treaty was done between parties that know one another. There is a desire on the part of both the suzerain and the vassal to have a relationship based on loyalty to one another. It's not a hard, cold contract. In the case of Yahweh making the covenant with Israel, it was indeed just that, God doing the initiating, God making the first move the nation of israel was about to enter the land of the suzerain he already had a relationship with israel but he desired to renew it 40 years after the lord made the treaty initially with the previous generation this is absolutely key let me point out just this one aspect here it's found in moses reminding the people of what we call the 10 commandments and that's really not not true that's not that's kind of a misnomer when we say Ten Commandments, but we'll get to that later. But notice carefully how it's worded in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. So uh, open up your Bible to Deuteronomy 5, 6, and you'll see this. It, it, again, it's amazing when you think about this, because usually when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we start where? You shall have no other gods before me, right? That's where we start. However, it didn't start there. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6 says this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. After this introduction, Yahweh through Moses lists then the commandments. But notice what comes first. What is it? It's relationship. I am the Lord, your God. I am your deliverer. I am your savior. I brought you out of the land of slavery. And only after the Lord reminds the people of the kind of relationship they, the vassals, have with him who is the suzerain, he then tells them what he expects from them. This is grace. This is deliverance. This is salvation. For the king of the universe to set his affection on the people of Israel is pure grace. Grace and delivery from slavery. That's Israel's good news is the foundation of this book that we call Deuteronomy. And we're going to continue to reorient ourselves to a proper understanding of what this book is, what this treaty is as we go along. And so as we finish this message, let me give you three points to ponder. The first one is, who we are comes before what we do. Who we are comes before what we do. As it was in the days of Moses, so it is with us. A person who obeys, a person obeys the Lord because of the saving relationship he or she already has with him. Not in order to gain a relationship with him. How often do we as sinful people, I'm talking about just the general person out there in the world. How often they think, if only I could be pleasing to the Lord, maybe he would accept me. If only my actions and attitudes and words could somehow measure up, then the Lord would say he's pleased with me. How many people are like that? How many here even are like that? And we're Christians. As parents, what would it be like for you if your son or daughter would continually come up to you and give you those kinds of words? Mom, dad, if I'm just pleasing, won't you just accept me? What can I do to to help you accept me in the family? What would that do to your heart? My hunch is that we would do everything within our power to assure our precious son or daughter of the truth that he or she is a member of the family because she or he was born in the family. You don't have to prove anything. You're in the family because I'm your father or I'm your mother. I'll never forget it, my own life. In my early years as a follower of Christ, I had a nagging question I kept asking the Lord about over and over again. I said, Lord, I accepted you, but did you accept me? See, I had a biological dad who didn't care for me. He didn't accept me. And neither did my stepdad. And neither did my step-stepdad. Now, when my foster dad entered into my life, I was broken and I was so numb that he never got into my life. He never he never convinced me that he cared for me. I'm sure he tried, but I couldn't I couldn't get it. But the last time I asked my heavenly father this question, here's what he assured me. He assured me through his word that, yes, indeed, he did accept me because Christ died on the cross for my sin. I'm accepted because I'm forgiven and I'm related to Christ through faith in him. And from that day on, I simply chose to believe the Lord about this issue. And I never looked back. And since that day, I've had no doubts. Why? Because I've chosen to believe what the Lord said to me about this. Through his word. Now, this doesn't mean I haven't struggled with other areas of my life. A ton of sin, right? Can you identify with this? Tragically, for periods of time, I lived in rebellion against the Lord. But you know, his faithfulness and his love always drew me back to himself. And I say hallelujah to that. The point I want us to see is that what we do for the Lord is based on who we are as Christians. To say it another way, indicatives come before imperatives. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a good example of what I'm talking about, the entire letter. Simply put, Ephesians 1 through 3 is an amazing section of where the Lord tells us of who we are as Christians. Identity is all important here. These are God's indicatives to his children. Again, his children. Accepted, adopted, forgiven, given new life, placed into the body of Christ. And so much more. These are spiritual facts of life that don't change. See, God's indicatives are directed toward his sons and daughters who are part of the family. That's just the way it is. And how we get into the family, we come into the family by repentance of sin and embracing the gospel of Christ. Then in Ephesians 4-6, through Paul gives us many things to put into practice precisely because we are children of God. And this is what's true about us, as he said in Ephesians 1-3. through We are to preserve unity between one another as spiritual siblings. We are to exercise this, exercise spiritual giftedness, be filled with the spirit, engage in spiritual warfare, maintain godly relationships, and so much more. See, these are God's imperatives given to his children. And again, his children do these things, Paul says, because the Lord has delivered you. Because you're in the family of God. Because you're saved by grace. And now live out the grace that God has worked in you. It's the same way with the sons and daughters of Israel as Moses speaks to them. Because the Lord delivered them. He saved them. He gave them freedom from their slavery. And therefore, with gratitude, they, the vassals, were to loyally serve the suzerain, Yahweh. Second point to ponder flows from the first. God saved his people, plural, to be his people. Israel was to live their lives together as God's covenant people. God's people living in God's land, in God's presence to show the world around them that God's ways are a far superior way to live. God's people live in the light. The nations live in darkness. And by the way, God set his people right in the middle of all kinds of hostile territory, all kinds of nations who had their own gods, and they were real. They were real. And they, Israel, was to make their witness attractive to the nations. That's why God set them there. In other words, God's covenant people were to show a witness to the nations around them of what life is like to have Yahweh as their God. We will see this over and over again in Deuteronomy, that the nations had gods that they worshipped and how hopeless life was for them. Now, again, I'm not saying that these gods that they were worshipping are the same or on the same level as Yahweh. No, far below, far below. There's only one true and living God, and we know this. But these nations worshipped gods that were far below, and they were deceived. How hopeless life was for them. It's a far inferior way of life compared to living under the lordship of the true and living God. His name is Yahweh. As it was then, so it is now. What are we as God's people to do? We are to set the witness as God's people together because those around us worship their gods, specifically the God of this world. From the perspective of the only true God, Their lives are hopeless, without hope, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12. They have no hope, and they're living without God in the world. With everything that's going on, how do non-Christians cope? Have you asked that question lately? What do you think? How do they cope with the pain, with the suffering, with the danger? How do we survive before we met the Lord? Before he brought us into his family, I think of how dangerous living this world is. You know, imagine living in a 12 story condo building in Florida when all of a sudden, with no warning, impossible to escape, it comes crashing down on your head. Or you and your family are driving through one of the major cities in our country when shots ring out and bullets pepper your vehicle. It can happen in a microsecond how to handle the pain, how to handle the suffering. As Christians, we have one another to lean on, to encourage and to be encouraged, to pray for and to be prayed for, to learn and to teach brothers and sisters not to be afraid. If there's a need in our midst for big ticket items like cars and air conditioning and all that kind of thing, funds are generated. Because we desire to live together in love and unity. But why do we do this? So that the world will sit up and take notice how much better life is because we follow Jesus. And here's one place where we can say all this in heaven too, right? And finally, we will see over and over again in Deuteronomy, Moses giving the people the proper motive to serve the Lord. And it is found in Deuteronomy six. 4 to 5, so you might want to turn there. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. This is their creedal statement. This is their declaration of faith. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then what does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Love the Lord. But we might be thinking, You know, I thought love was the hallmark of New Testament living. It is, but it is also the hallmark of Old Testament living in the sight of God. The Old Covenant, love. Law, love. Rules, love. Judgment, love. With the foundation of love and grace and truth. Josh Harris was a pioneer of the so-called Christian purity movement. He wrote the book "I Kiss Dating Goodbye," which helped thousands, if not millions, of young Christians, to simply follow the Lord when it comes to opposite-sex relationships. In his younger days, Josh would spend his time disciplining himself, or disciplining himself as well, and encouraging others to stay pure until marriage. These disciplines included. Scripture memory, a vital thing to do. And by the way, if you're not memorizing Scripture and meditating on it, you need to. It's what we need to do as Christians. Disciples of Jesus ought to do this. We need to memorize it and meditate on it so we can put it into practice in our lives. It's my understanding that Josh Harris committed to memory, Psalm 119, verse 9. And it goes like this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. He also had verse 11. Committed to memory as well. He said, or verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But something happened to Josh Harris. After years of pursuing the Lord, engaged in Scripture memory, serving as pastor, he recently divorced his wife, declared that he was no longer a Christian. Those were his words. And was apparently seen hanging around the gay community. What happened to this young man who, sold, who, who who displayed so much promise? I believe that Josh Harris lived his life having missed the heart of something. For in memorizing Psalm 119.9 and skipping over to 119.11, he missed the heart of these verses, which is verse 10. And here is that verse. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. And then verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. See, being obedient to the law of God, the Torah, is of no use unless one's heart is in it. See, I'm not talking about emotions that come and go. I'm talking about having a relationship with the Lord that begins with gratitude in our heart for the salvation He's given us. See, we can memorize All the scripture that we want, but if we cut the heart out, failing to seek the Lord with all of our heart, obedience to the Torah is of no value. Contrast Josh Harris with the Lord Jesus. In the days of his ministry, as soon as he was baptized in the Jordan River, he immediately went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days, Satan let loose. On him, raining down on his heart temptation after temptation. How did the Lord defeat the enemy? Scripture memory and submitting himself to the authority of the Father. The scripture the Lord quoted <laughs> Deuteronomy 8:3: Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6:16: 6, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Deuteronomy 6.13, It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So what was the difference between Josh Harris and his defeat and the Lord Jesus and his victory? I can't speak for Mr. Harris, but I can say that the Lord Jesus did what the psalmist prayed. He sought the Father with all his heart, like Psalm 119.10 says. May we do the same. Let's devote our time in the study of Deuteronomy, seeking to serve the Lord with our whole heart. Let's be like Jesus. And on the other hand, let's consider the life of Josh Harris as a cautionary tale for us. Let's not be like Josh Harris. May we beg the Lord to cause us to follow him with all of our heart because of the salvation he has given us. That we might not wander from his commandments, and all the while proclaiming the words of Psalm 119:97, "How I love your law, your what? Torah. It is my meditation all the day. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your word. The promises, the blessings the spiritual facts of life that you tell your people, words of comfort, words of peace, but words of warning, words of cursing, words of discipline, but all for one purpose, that your people might grow up to be like you. Father, I want to thank you so much for the book of Deuteronomy. These are the words, the words of teaching, teaching what life really is all about. Lord, I pray that we will become very countercultural as we go through Deuteronomy over these next weeks. We want to thank you, Lord, in advance for what you will do. Prepare us, Lord. Give us an excitement about your law, about your Torah, not in order to gain salvation, because those of us in this room who know you as Lord and Savior We already have that relationship. We don't have to prove anything to you. But Lord, we want to prove and show that we love you. And you told us in your word how we are to show this is that we obey your commandments out of gratitude for what you've done for us. So Lord, I pray now that as we turn our attention to another part of the worship service, may we give from a heart that's overflowing and full of gratitude for what you've done, for your salvation. And then, Father, help us to sing our last song with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we'll give you praise and thanks for what you are and what you will do in Jesus' name.